in just our service here that we spend some time looking at God's Word together. So I'd invite you, if you have a Bible this morning, to take it out. If you don't have one, there's probably one under your chair or in the row in front of you or on your phone, whatever works well for you. Um, I think I forgot to mention, too, those just connection cards. If you do happen to fill one out, you can put it right in that basket in the back on your way out and make sure we get that to the appropriate place as well. Well, we, again, are just starting our series here um, out of the book of Mark, chapter 10. All right, Mark, chapter 10. While you're turning, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into the word of the Lord together. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your word that we uh, look to as a source of hope and strength and encouragement so, Father, now as we come before you, just ask that you be present, you would work, and just drill down in whatever it is that you want to work within us, God. We ask that you'd accomplish for our good and for your glory. Amen. So, <coughs> we are beginning our Easter series titled, If This Is Love. And at first glance, that question may sound backwards, it may sound different, it may feel like it should say, is this love? Question mark. But I think having it phrased that way Right? It beckons a type of response. Right? If this is love, then blank. Right? If this is love, then, then count me in, maybe. Or if this is love, forget it. Like, I'm out. Not interested. How we look at this question, I think, can really help us and, and kind of help us determine how we hold to a lot of things, right? How we answer that question actually will kind of reveal how we hold to, I think, important things in our lives, meaning... If this is love, right, in my relationship with my wife, man, this is love, I'm in. Like, as we were dating, right, if this is what it's about, like, I'm in, right? And that, that, that process led to marriage, right? But some could say, man, if this is love, I, I'm not so sure I, I agree with this, right? Like, that actions don't seem very loving. Those words don't sound very loving. So that, if this is love, like, I'm out, right? So there's not always a concrete answer here with this question. Some may have come to say, like, if this is love, if you claim this is out of love, like, I don't want to see what hate is, right? Because someone says, well, this, this is out of love. We're going to say this to you. Like, if that's loving, like, I don't even want to know what it's like to be on your bad side. Like, what does it actually look like? This type of question, I think, phrased this way can actually be very helpful. If this is love, when phrased that way, it can be very helpful in helping us make decisions, and so if you spend any time around the church, or really if you just kind of acknowledge the modern-day calendar, what you probably have gleaned at this point is Easter is an upcoming holiday. All right, some call it Easter, some call it Resurrection Sunday. And really, as I thought about uh, the these series that we're going to work into today and, and, and sought the Lord in prayer about it, it, it really caused me to wonder something. And the wondering that I kind of wrestled with was this. If we don't see Jesus as who he claims to be, then it's likely the Palm Sunday, next Sunday, right? And Resurrection Sunday, the Sunday that will mean very little. Like if we don't have a clear picture of, of who this Jesus is, then what does it matter about Easter Sunday? Like who cares? Like why get up at 6 a.m. to see the sunrise with another church family? Like what's the point? Why come together? What, what, what difference does it make? Like, if we don't see Jesus as good, as loving, as truthful, as honest, frankly, if we don't see Jesus as who he claims to be, then the next two weeks really don't matter at all. And so today, I really just want to probe a question. 
is a question I've asked before, but I, I want to come around again to it. What is it that you actually think about Jesus? Like, what is it that you think about Jesus? And like, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean like the quick, the quick church answer. Like, people are looking at me. I think they know more than I do about the Bible, so I'm going to say what I think is the right thing, right? Like, it doesn't take long to hang out with kids in, in just a children's class and to realize that if they spend any time in the church, when you ask them a question, their first answer is just going to be, Jesus. And nine times out of ten, they're right. Like, we affirm that in them. That's exciting, too. Like, they're learning. They're listening. But when I, when I ask and just you to consider that question, what is it you think about Jesus? What I really mean is this. Like, at your core, what settles in your heart and your mind when you think, who is Jesus? What phrase or two would come to your mind when asking yourself that question? Who is this Jesus? And then whatever those statements might be, I want you to actually go one step further with that. What are the ramifications of that conclusion? So here's what I mean. If Jesus was just historical guy, right? So, so across the board, whether someone's an atheist or a Christian, it does not matter. They will all agree that Jesus, this guy named Jesus, was at least a historical figure. There's accounts who confirm that. There's data that tells us that. There's history that tells us that. And if that's all I conclude that Jesus is, is a historical figure, okay, we'll look at his life, see what might be useful and beneficial and how he might have helped culture and shaped the world, and then move on. I mean, I can, I can do that with any president that we've had. I can do that with any ruler that the, that the world has ever seen, right? Any philosopher, I can look at Aristotle and Plato, oh, okay, that's who they were, that's what they thought, how it relate to my life, and then just move on. But if Jesus is something different than just a historical figure, if Jesus is actually the Jesus of the Bible, then his ramifications might be specific and they might be large. I think that to help kind of this discerning process, just kind of getting out of the gate of who is this Jesus, we're going to work through Mark for the next three weeks, okay? And so I want to look at this morning just an account of Mark chapter 10, and it looks at Jesus' interaction with a young man. In Mark's account, right, we know that, that there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all talk about Jesus. They're all about Jesus. The Gospel according to Mark, or the Gospel according to Matthew, maybe how they be, could better be phrased, right? The good news of Jesus according to Mark. Like, what did Mark see and write about it? What did Luke see and write about it? We're going to look at Mark's vantage point. According to Mark, this happens just really close to him going into Jerusalem. And if you know anything about just the, the rest of the story of a gospel, it's going to work out that, that once Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he quickly finds himself moving towards a cross that was not his. And so he kind of walks into this account, right? Jesus was on a journey, moving rapidly towards Jerusalem and all the things that Jerusalem meant. So don't mix up. Jesus is not just a historical figure. Jesus is God of the flesh. Somehow Jesus is fully God and fully man, and we don't fully get that. Wanna why? Because we're not God, okay? But we know that, that he had his deity and he had his humanity. And so Jesus knew what going to Jerusalem would mean. See, Jesus knew from the very beginning what his life on earth was to be about. What it's, it's kind of end point, climax point was going to be. He knew that. Like, you struggle with that? You struggle in your life? Like, is this the peak? Is this it? Am I there? Like, I'm, I'm 38. Like, am I hitting it right now? Is this my, my whew, downward slope? 
I said to Kim, I had, my birthday was what, a couple weeks ago? I said, 38, I'm not great at math. What's that, 76, right? 30 and 38, 76. I could be halfway there. Like, I, this could be it. I, was like, I said to Kim, I'm going to buy something expensive, if you like, and go get a new car or something. I don't know, right? right but Jesus didn't have that struggle. Like, Jesus always knew what his life was going to be about. And so he finds himself here on the way to Jerusalem, going towards a crowd of people. He'll eventually encounter disciples wondering what's going to happen. He's moving his way towards this guy named Pilate. He's going towards beatings. He's going towards rejection. He's eventually going towards a cross. I don't, I don't, we don't know for sure, but I wonder if there was just some sense of urgency that Jesus felt in this moment. As he's rapidly approaching Jerusalem and the cross, some sorts of urgency that he had that, that those around him would just see him clearly. They would fully get and fully understand who he was. And by those seeking him, that they would see him clearly. And maybe with that thought, kind of just seeing Jesus clearly, let's, let's read together Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. It'll be on the screen for us as well. This is God's word. It says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to him, to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Before you reach for your wallet and try to protect it right now, this is not a sermon on church tithing, all right? Relax. I'm not going to ask you to give an extra 4,000% or something like that, all right? But this, for me, man, as I kind of just prayed and read through, this really gets at something. Something deep, deep within all of us. And we'll unpack that as we go. See, I think Mark's interaction here is fascinating to me as he accounts. Other Gospels have the same account in there. But to me, this interaction with a young man, right, this one coming to seek him. Other, other Gospels call it the rich young man. But here's what we see right from the beginning. We see a man coming to see Jesus. Now let's just point out some kind of quick details that we saw as he read through this. Right? He says he's a young man. This young man who seemingly has done well for himself. Right? And he comes to Jesus. Right? Frankly, that's just encouraging to me. Like he came to Jesus. Jesus didn't like come find him. He came to Jesus. There's a showingness of a willingness to come to him. It says he kneels down before him, which we could infer maybe as some sort of symbol of honoring or respecting someone. So we might say, man, this young guy, he's got some cash maybe, but he's off to a good start. 
He seeks out Jesus. He calls him good teacher. And he kneels to him. It could be inferred, man, this guy, he's doing well. He understands Jesus is important. He shows respect. He even addresses in the correct way. And even that, that phrase, good teacher, what would that imply to us? That, that even this man, his words, that he understands that, that Jesus, his life, his teaching, his words, they're good. They're helpful. They're beneficial to it's likely that, that if you and I were hanging out around Jesus in this moment, we would see this guy come in, we'd probably recognize him, and when he takes notice of, and asks Jesus a question, we would actually stop and probably listen. Like, how is this going to play out? Because I know who Jesus is, and I know who this guy is. And frankly, the question he asks, like, I'd love to know the answer to that question. See, the man's initial question is hugely important, Right? One that I think if we were there, we would find ourselves leaning in and listening very intently. And what was that question? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If we heard that question asked by somebody and we had some minute confidence that the person being asked could actually answer that question, I'm telling you, we would stop. Like we would listen. Why Why do I think that? Because I think that what ravishes our culture is the biggest thing is fear, and one of the primary motivations of fear is death. Like, what's that big unknown thing called death? And so if we heard someone say, man, teacher, help me know. Help me know how I can can inherit eternal life, we would just pause. Whatever we had to do that afternoon would stop. It would become less important. And we'd just kind of perk up a little bit and listen. But don't miss what he says. He says, what must I do to have or to inherit eternal life? What does that reveal to us? Well, it reveals some perspective. It's like that this, this man who's done well for himself brings the perspective of doing. Right, tell me what I have to do. Tell me what, needs, what I need to get done. Right? The way he kind of phrases his question is, not how can somebody inherit eternal life, but what must I do? Like, what do I have to get after? What, what, what's it, what do I need to be all about? Right? It implies, since they're doing it, personal action. It could even imply personal responsibility, but it definitely has a focus on the man's doing. His active role in somehow attaining eternal life. Look, this might be something we do ourselves. We think about Jesus, we think about God, we think about our own lives. We begin to consider our own life. What have we done? Like, what's our resume look like? Like, if I'm halfway here, man, if I'm halfway through this game called life right now, I'm looking back. Right now, I've got more in the rear view than in the windshield. That's kind of discouraging to think about. Right? But I'm looking back in my life thinking, what, what's there? What's accumulated? What's built up? What's established? What's, what's a legacy, if you will? Behind me. What things have we done, good or bad? What things have we avoided? And we just kind of, we get lost in that moment of wonder. I think that's exactly where this man is right now. We think, was that choice right or was it wrong? Was it enough? Is God pleased with me now? Look all that I've done. Can God accept me? See, it seems like I think as I think about my life and maybe even your life, that my kind of human default is to run very quickly to my list. 
right, the accolades. What, what things can I kind of get up in my scale here to weigh more, to just prove to God that somehow that I'm good enough, to prove to myself <laughs> somehow I'm good enough, to give myself confidence that, that somehow, man, if I walk outside these doors and that bus comes and just takes me out, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be okay because I've showed that I'm good enough. think that's our default. And I'm going to caution us that if we run to that, from that default to become our conclusion, perhaps we're going down the trail this young man's gone down and it's not the right result. Let's look at Jesus' response right at the very beginning. He looks at him and says, why do you call me good? Verse 18. No one is good except God alone. And if to instantly rebuttal this man from what he very, from the very onset of what he begins with, Jesus points out what actually is good. Now, Jesus is amazing, and he's not you and me. So here's how this plays out, and here's what I mean by that. Jesus gets to see into the heart and mind of people. I think I can marginally do that with people. Mainly four young people will live in my house called my kids. Right? So when they fire a question, like when they're halfway out, my answer is like, no. Because I think nine times out of ten, can I watch TV? Can I watch a show? Can I play the Xbox? Right? I just think we're going down that road. Right? And can I talk about that? How like we just, man, that's probably not fair. They could have a legit question like, can, on a magical day, can I have an apple? Like, that would be an awesome, I mean, an unbelievable day, right? right? <laughs> or, Dad, can I go clean the bathroom? <laughs> like, I just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like crush myself one day. I'm going to say no. They're like, well, sorry. I was going to clean the bathroom. Right? But as our first response right, is obviously we think that way. And Jesus is saying, look, let me stop you from the very beginning. And he points out that, that God alone is good. And here's why I think he says that. Jesus is looking from the very beginning to redefine what this man knows and assumes is good. It's likely that this man has a view of goodness, that goodness is of value. Like goodness carries weight. And Jesus, right here in this moment, he wants to give clarity that goodness in its purest form, right, in the manner that truly matters, in a definition that brings full clarity to goodness, that God alone owns that. That God alone is good. Again, in the purest and righteous and perfect form, God alone gets that title. See, Jesus, I think in this attempt, because Jesus is fully God, he's trying to redirect and reorient this man's heart because he's about to go down a conversation really to, to redefine what good means. And so right at the outset, look, I think we, I think we need to understand that, that God alone holds this, this status of good right now. And so maybe today you're thinking that, like, I'm a good person. Okay, you might be a nice person, but in the purest form of good, God alone gets that title. And because when we begin to build you like this man who kind of builds this kind of accolade and status and resume for himself based on goodness, what we're going to find out is that's going to be broken in the end. And so if you, allow, you and I alone rely on our goodness to carry some sort of merit and weight in the views of God, we're going to fall short. Right out of the gate, he's just trying to reorient a little bit. He's starting to shift a little bit for this man. And Jesus, he wants to bring clarity to the idea and its, and its effects. Right? What does goodness actually mean? 
And so he begins to ask this man questions. I love this. This interaction is fascinating to me. He comes, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit your life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. He doesn't take one breath. He goes right into, you know the commandments, and starts laying them out. Right? You might recognize some of these commandments from the what? The Ten Commandments. Right? Other gospel accounts kind of add in, uh, love your neighbor as yourself as well. But primarily, these are, these are familiar. Like, Jesus didn't go to the obscure Old Testament law. How many doves should you kill? Like, he didn't go to that. He, w- he went to the, the ones that were common, right? And the, the ones that were understood, right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, and honor your father and your mother. And the young man's response is amazing. He says, look, I'm good. Like, I'm good. I've kept all those. I've completely and fully met that standard, he says. Even when I was young, like, those things were locked down. Not a problem. Never murdered, never stole, honor mom and dad, above reproach. I'm good. And I have to think that in that moment, in that brief moment for that young man, what flooded his brain was, this is awesome. Like this teacher poses in front of me these commandments, and I'm able to say, I'm good. Think of just kind of like the emotional high this guy's on right now. He asked Jesus how to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, keep commands, right? You know the commands, he says, sorry. And he lays them out. And he says, look, I'm good. I've got to think in that moment that this guy's on cloud nine. Like, I'm done. Like, look, Jesus, pleasure to meet you. Have a great day. Like, back off quickly and run so he can't change his mind. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. So the young man has no idea what Jesus is going to say next. But it seems to me, I think anyway, that he's pretty confident at this point. But listen, church, listen, family, we cannot miss what happens next. Verse 21, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And so what we know is what is about to be said next is coming from a place of compassion and mercy and love. And for me, that changes the entire tenor of the next few sentences going forward. Like Jesus looks at him and he loves him. And that love for him is not just this theoretical love, but it's this love that stirs him, that stirs Jesus to then have words that come out of his mouth to press into the hard places of this young man's life. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And I believe in this moment, when this man has such a high sense of accomplishment, his pride was likely full of confidence that he would inherit eternal life. The very question he asked about, that when Jesus looked at him with love in his eyes and presses in a little bit closer, this young man's heart fell. These words that Jesus spoke, go, 
Sell all that you have. Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. They broke this man's heart. It's like being on the cusp. One second left. You're about to become the national champion. And that next moment, it's gone. It's gone. I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of things that may tie it a little bit more closer to home. Like, Picture that spouse waiting at the altar on that wedding day. That person never shows up. He thought that would be the grand moment. All the arrangements were made. You're there, you're waiting, you're waiting. And that heart just drops out the moment you finally come to accept that you're just left by yourself. This, I believe, is what this man feels in this moment. He goes from the very peak of elation, thinking, I'm good, like I've kept all those commands, I've done the right thing, to Jesus' words. And how do I say that? Verse 22 tells us, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, these words of Jesus were not at all what the man expected to hear. It's likely that that this man wanted to know what exactly he could do like, what he, can he do on his own choosing, on his own decisions, on his own strength to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus kind of posed that in front of him in a, in a way, but the way that really is actually driving not at the possessions, but at the heart. Like, Jesus puts that right back in front of him, but he hits it right where this guy knows it hurts the most. And in this moment, if we're reading, if we're compassionate at all, our hearts should break just a little bit for this man. Because this man's response was not yes, but he was disheartened. He was, in fact, sorrowful. And he walks away. We don't know, but maybe he went away trying to find another answer. Like, maybe I'll ask Peter quietly. Maybe Peter will give me something else. Not that. Maybe John. He seems loving. Let's ask John. Maybe the man, again, was hoping just for more commandments to follow. But in the end, in the midst of all his doing, this man's heart and struggle is revealed. What was ultimately shown in this brief interaction is that this man loved his wealth even more so than the opportunity to inherit eternal life. I think it's important to make just a quick note here. That I believe that Jesus is not implying or instructing some sort of salvation by works. That you cannot earn your way to heaven. Like I don't believe that if this man just said, all right, sell it all. I'm going to heaven. I'm done. Like I don't believe that's what Jesus is teaching in this moment. But rather this interaction, this is an important note. It's here to reveal that though the man thought goodness was to be achieved and necessary for eternal, eternal life, but apart from Jesus, it's not possible. Like, that, that's very important to pick up because I don't want you to walk away thinking, if I just do, then I, if I would just, man, Jesus tells me to sell it all, sell it all, and then I'm good for, for glory, for eternal life. That's not what Jesus is implying here. What Jesus is trying to get at is the heart issue going on here. See, I think this interaction really reveals two truths for us today. The first is this, that it's, it's meant to reveal that when it comes to a life with Jesus, we have to be willing to trust his words. When it comes to a life, like living life with Jesus, okay, that's what maybe culture would call a Christian. 
And I'm going to define that for you so that we're all on the same page. A Christian, I believe, according to the Bible, is someone who trusts in their life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Claiming Jesus and calling to be Lord and Savior of their, of their lives. That Jesus' blood covers, his sacrifice on the cross covers our brokenness, our shame, and our sin, restores our relationship with our Heavenly Father, and we are accepted because of Jesus. That's what I mean by being a Christian. So I think that the first thing is this, that this story is meant to reveal that when it comes to a life with Jesus, to being a Christian, we have to be willing to trust his words. The second thing I think it reveals is that money... And in reality, so many other things cannot be the thing we cling to and hold on to more than Jesus. Not only for life here, but for eternal life. See, for the young man, and maybe for you too today, money might be the source of hope for you. I don't want to ignore the facts of the story. It might be money is the issue for you right now. That money is some sort of place of comfort and hope. For the man, it definitely was. It was the one thing that I think that beyond all circumstances in the young man's life, it could solve his problems. Meaning this, I think that for this young man, and again, maybe for you or for me today, that, that if we have medical problems, with enough money, I can solve that. You've got a problem with your home, no problem. Pay someone to fix it or move. Money can solve that problem. You have a problem at work? No problem. Find a new job. Fire the person. Start a new business. You've got options. All these things drive really into finance that, that somehow money can somehow solve problems. See, I think it's clear in the scriptures that in our world, money is and will continue to be a huge distractor for someone in following Jesus. Look at money is not the worst thing in the world. Let's just be very upfront about this, okay? It is not the worst thing in the world. Someone tells you that, they're wrong. Someone says that money is the root of all evil. That's misconstruing the Bible. We'll read that passage in two seconds. All right? But money is a huge hurdle. Money has got huge potential, potential. And why? Money gives us some sort of sense of confidence, security, and firmness that we can figure it out. So I think there is some concern here. Listen to just 1 Timothy 6, 8 through 10. It'll be on the screen for you. It says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. And these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's helpful for us today. This is where the rich man was. So we can't ignore it. We have to talk about it. It's in the story here. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, why? Look, if you were to ask the average person who's affluent in the world, how much money is enough money? Do you know what the common answer is? Just a little more. Just a little more. See, we live with some sense of thought that, that someone just a little more will be content. Just a little more and we'll be happy. And listen, money is not the only thing. Money is not the only thing that we kind of lend ourselves to think that way. <clears throat> if I could be healthy, if I could just live here, if my past wouldn't have had all that garbage in it, 
If my friends were just better friends, my spouse was a better spouse, and my job was a better job, and we could think of thing after thing after thing, like if this was just better, then I would know Jesus loves me. If this was just better, then life would somehow be better. Guys, ultimately, you're like me, like it or not, you want to be in control, and somehow, if that was better, you'd be in more control, and then you could somehow determine what the next day is going to look like. Sorry, you're like me, that's not a good thing for you. You like to be in control. I like to be in control. And so often, man, it's our control that makes our lives held so tightly in our own hands that we will not let Jesus have access to it. And that's what the young man faced. A life that was held so tightly that he wanted control not only how his tomorrow was going to go, he wanted control how it was that he could actually get eternal life. See, there is temptation for our lives to simply be lured away to seek out perceived comfort and hope, yet the reality is these things may indeed be what exactly will stop you from following Jesus. So I said that this story, right, is meant to, I think, in reality, to reveal that, that we cannot hold on to things more tightly than Jesus. We have to consider that. What is Jesus to you? I don't know. You have to answer that question. And then I would actually challenge you, right, not only what ramifications does that have in your life, but I would maybe back up one step. What is Jesus to you, and what is that based on? Because often what I find is that conclusion is based on feeling or story or somehow a merger of the both. Like, well, this is what I heard Jesus is like. This is what I think I remember because I grew up in the church and I remember like my, my, my CCD classes, my catechism classes, right? I remember Sunday school back in the day and I think that's what Jesus is like. But, but we don't really have a grasp. We don't really know. So we've now decided that, that this is what Jesus must be like. So I'm not interested or this is what Jesus is like and I am interested. But it could be that that Jesus that you've concluded is not the Jesus of the Bible at all. And there's huge concern there when that happens. I'll say it again. The temptation for your life and for my life is to be lured away and seeking out perceived comfort and hope. Yet the reality is that those things might indeed be what stops you from knowing Jesus fully. Look, the man came to Jesus. He said, good teacher. He asked some questions. From all accounts, we're thinking this guy's off to a great start. But what gripped and had his heart more than anything else was his stuff, and that stopped him from following Jesus. Secondly, we're going to finish with this. The ultimate hurdle for this young man was his willingness to trust the words of Jesus. See, it would have seemed the outset again. He was on the right path, but yet at the end, the man did not trust the words of Jesus more than he trusted his own thoughts. See, if he couldn't trust Jesus with just his stuff, right, the stuff, the things that you know, okay, the stuff that will eventually break, the stuff that will get lost, it will rust out, it will fade. Jesus asked him to get rid of all that stuff that could not last eternity, and the man was unwilling to get rid of the stuff he couldn't keep for eternity to gain eternity. 
and ultimately it reveals the man's heart was so sucked into those things that he could not part from them. He did not trust Jesus' words more than he trusted his own words. See, how you and I hear Jesus' words are extremely important. Like, are the words of Jesus helpful when things are hard? Are the words of Jesus just good advice? Are they worth listening to some of the time? Are they life like they claim to be? Right? If Jesus is this good teacher, right? if he is the Son of God, God in the flesh, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is who the Bible says he is, if he is who for the last 2,000 plus years, right, the church, God's people have been honoring and worshiping, then his words have to be significant. And so when Jesus speaks, we ought to listen. So listen, John 16, Jesus says this, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Matthew 9, 2, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. John 8, 36, If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Matthew 10, 26. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Or Matthew 19, 26, but Jesus looked at him and said, with man, this is possible, with God, all things are possible. That last one is very important to us. That should be very important to us. Right? With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This means that that man could have had eternal life despite his riches. He could have given his life to Christ, showed total dependence on Jesus to provide for him, showed a love for others by selling his possessions and giving to those in need. It could have happened. It wasn't impossible. Because with God, it's possible. If Jesus' words are true, then it also means that you and I can know and be known by our Creator through a relationship and a trust in, in Jesus' sinless life, death, and resurrection. If Jesus' words are true, it means that God hears our prayer. And that when we're in Christ, that we are fully accepted. Even when we struggle to sense His love, we are fully established because of Christ when we have a relationship with Him. So you have to ask yourself the question, if I trust in Jesus, do I actually think his words are true? Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. If you're today, you're in Christ, you trust in Christ, do you believe that? And I don't, I'm talking like tomorrow, when you're at your worst, when your kids are like, ah, right, and life is chaotic, like, do you still believe that? Do you believe Jesus' words when he says, man, you are free? Because Jesus set you free indeed. Like, do you believe that? Like, I think one of the biggest downsides of the current church is we don't live like we actually believe Jesus' words. And Jesus smacked me with a two-bore right in the face this week with this. Like, I was away in New Jersey with a bunch of pastors this last week, and, and there's a guy I brought in just to kind of to do some teaching and he just pressed in different ways that I don't think I've ever just kind of wrestled through and pressed into. Right? And it is the, the phrase he said over and over was, you are accepted because of Jesus. Like when you wake up first in the morning, like you're accepted. Like right then, that moment, Jesus loves you more than he could ever love you. 
in, in the middle of your train wreck day when you make really poor decisions, Jesus loves you more in that moment than you ever will know. Well, where is that really driven out of? It's just trusting that Jesus' words are true. That my sins are forgiven. That he has set me free. And with God, it is possible. See, this interaction allows us to ask some hard questions. If this is love, if this is love from Jesus, are you interested? To speak speak truth into hard places? To, To ask hard questions that reveal the heart? Like, that might be a hard question. Like, Jesus, if this is love, I don't, I don't know. But listen, Jesus presses into those spaces because he loves you dearly. He presses right now into those places that you don't want him to press, and he asks hard questions that you don't want him to ask because he loves you dearly, and he wants what's best for you, and Jesus is the one who gets to define what's best for you, and what's best for you is to know him. And I don't mean to say a prayer to hopefully go to heaven one day. Like, I mean to know him, to walk with him day in and day out. It's what he wants for you. So as we kind of move over these next few weeks towards the cross of Christ, we have to begin with that first question, Jesus, do I trust your words? Because if your answer is no, then honestly, the next two weeks mean very little. But if your answer is possibly, marginally, maybe, yes, wholeheartedly, or anything else besides blatant no, and honestly, even if no, come back anyway. Because I think Jesus is doing some work in you. Jesus wants to know you. He, He loves you. That's why he came. So we have to ask ourselves, do we only trust his words for salvation or do we trust them for every day? Do we trust his commands in the scriptures? Do we cling to them wholeheartedly? Do we trust that even in our brokenness that God welcomes us to come to him? And my hope and my prayer is yes. If that's love, then that's what I want to know. One of the things that I can appreciate about those who know me well is they ask the hard questions. They, they press into the hard places. And that's good for me. It stretches me and it grows me and it allows me to develop and see kind of things that I don't want to see and it's helpful. But trust at times, it just begins with small steps. So what are small steps you can just press into Jesus allowing him to press into you more As you kind of wrestle that, I would just encourage you to wrestle that question. Like, if this is Jesus, can I trust him? Yes. Okay. How can I trust him? And then just listen for him to give that leading, that guidance. Would you pray with me? God, we just are grateful for these words and for this time together. I just ask now that um, you would help us to understand Help this to make sense. Help this to just be worked through in our lives and, and just wrestle through Like, how do we look at your words? How do we look at who you are? How do we look at your life? How do we look at the hope of the gospel? And what are you speaking to us right now in spite of this story of this young man? And then God, just help us to walk as you lead us. In your name, amen.